John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 817.PR0716, certificate number 37891, Mummy Brown. You remember Mummy Brown used to play for the Baltimore Colts? <laughs> Mummy Brown, I thought she was one of the great original blues guitar players. Yeah, that's what that's what it sounds like. Maybe yeah. some like Chitlin Circuit comedian, yeah. uh, Moms Mabley, Mummy Brown. I love all those, <laughs> those hilarious earthy women. Mm. No, Mummy Brown is actually made from real life mummies. What is, what is it, Mummy Brown? Is it a spice? Is it a... <laughs> <laughs> well, people have actually been eating mummies for a long, long time. Like if you, like you, have you seen a mummy in a museum? Yeah. Like if you go to the British Museum... They, they just sacked tens of thousands of mummies. Like, they have more mummies than they know what to do with. Sure. Well, you know, they went around the world and took everything that wasn't nailed down during a certain period, right? That's what the British Museum is. I was in, uh, I was in Greece last year, and they built a whole museum for the Acropolis, like, just in case they ever get the marbles back that the British stole. And, uh, you know, there's just empty holes in the wall waiting for them to come home. I know. They're so mad about that. And, you know, maybe rightfully so, but who knows? Who can go back in time and tell, like... I feel like anybody would be mad. It's just we never had that experience of, you know, the British showing up. Like, if the British had won the War of 1812 and then just taken the... Um, Declaration of Independence. And, and the Liberty Bell, like, <laughs> you know. And put them in It's a like museum. a Nicolas Cage movie, and they just take them away. Bye. But in particular, like, the looting of Egypt and Greece. Very, very serious. And, and really... Uh, even at the time, I think there were laws and there were just crafty British merchants who were like, I bet we can find a workaround if I slip the right guy a few drachmas. Right. Well, yeah, there wasn't exactly a fence around most of this stuff. It was just sort of out being, you know, like goat herders were using the the Colosseum as a place to keep their flocks, right? It wasn't, sure. I mean, it's still really not. The, the Acropolis, the Parthenon had lasted for millennia just fine. And then, you know, shortly before the modern age, I think, you know, the, I don't know, the Byzantines or the Turks or somebody just like blew it up or something, you know. Sorry, <laughs> you, you had a, you had a good run, but. What's the famous 
story of them of Napoleon's armies using uh, the the Sphinx for target practice. Yeah. All that damage to the Sphinx's face all just came in recent memory. That one's actually not true. That, is that right? The idea that the Sphinx's nose was knocked off by a French shell is actually a modern myth. Sadly. Is that a modern myth? Well, we'll have to talk about that on a different program. But it's true that uh, you know you can see a lot of mummies in museums, and I have never looked at one of these things and thought I'd like to just take a big bite out of that. I'd like to just eat that like jerky. Yeah, but have you ever wanted shark fin soup or to eat the spleen of a bear or any of these other? Um, I can't tell if you're saying that would be more normal or if this is the same urge. Because I don't think I have ever wanted to eat the spleen of a bear. You know, I feel like there's a lot, there's a lot of um, traditional medicine that ascribes maybe not magical powers, but certainly like special powers to these items. Well, that's what happened here. When the first people started chowing down on mummies, it was not a road trip snack. It was, um, I bet this will cure what ails me. Sure. Um, our word mummy comes from the Persian mumia, which means bitumen. Which is tar. Yeah, bitumen is a sticky petroleum-related hydrocarbon that bubbles out of the ground. Like it's literally asphalt. Yes. Like we today we call it asphalt. It's had many names over the years. The Greeks used to call it piss asphaltus. Sure. Which means asphalt pitch, but it's really a great name. I, I would I would love to try some piss ass. It's the only word that starts with piss ass, I guess. <laughs> Are you sure that's how it was pronounced? <laughs> it could be piss asphaltus. I'm not sure. <laughs> piss asphaltus. It was also called... Uh, biggest dicketh. <laughs> <laughs> it was also called bitumen Judaica or Jews pitch hmm. for, I'm sure, terrible anti-Semitic reasons that yeah. are lost in the mists of time. So what is the relationship between tar and mummy? Okay, so that's not particularly obvious. Um, so this stuff would bubble out of the ground in the near and Middle East. Bubble and crude. Yeah. <laughs> out comes a bubble and uh, mummy juice from the ground. And uh, the Persians and the Arabs are convinced in, in the early medicine of that era that it will just cure just about anything. You can rub it on your, you can set fractures with it because it's sticky, but you can also just rub it as a salve on a bruise. You take it internally for just about anything, tuberculosis, you name it. Hmm. Um, but it starts to become very rare. There's just not as much of this stuff bubbling up as there used to be. Tar. Yeah, there's a, a bubble for bitumen. A tar bubble. <laughs> a tar baby. I'm not sure. Is all tar the same as bitumen? I guess. I think that it's the same stuff, right? That's just a word that in America we say asphalt, but the rest of the world says bitumen. Yeah, it's, I think so. Like if you go to like if you go to Europe, do they still say the roads are paved with? Oh no, they say macadam or something. Yeah, I mean they say aluminium, so it's hard to know what the heck they're talking. Who about. Who knows what? But you know, doing. if you go to La Brea, right? We have all the tar bubbling up that you could possibly you could cure as many tuberculosi as you wanted with that. La Brea stuff. having not been discovered yet. <laughs> The uh, these uh, early Islamic healers went a different way. They saw buried mummified corpses and thought, "Hey, these things are black, just like bitumen is. What if we just start eating these?" And uh, that seems like such a stretch. It's a leap, right? There's so many other things that are like sticky and black. Before you get to before you get to dead Egyptians, yeah, eat these corpses. Yeah, the ease with which people take to this is the most surprising part of the story to me. Um, and it turned out they weren't wrong. There's a certain in fairly modern ancient Egyptian history, like New Kingdom period, the Egyptians did use bitumen as a preservative when they mummified corpses. Oh, but for many years they did not. Most of the corpses that were being found were probably 100% piss asphaltus free. Uh huh. Um, <clears throat> so this was part of the early process of trying to figure out how to mummify people was maybe if we also smear some bitumen in, it will 
it will retroactively cure their tuberculosis and also preserve their bodies forever? Well, it's sticky. I guess I can see why you would want to use it. I mean, I, I think today we have the idea that the Egyptians were just geniuses and invented this amazing secret 11 herbs and spices to mummify people, but that's really not true at all. They just took everything out of the body and then just stuffed it with a very simple salt. Like they just stuffed people with soda ash and sodium bicarbonate, essentially baking soda. Really? And they just put them in the ground. And if you're in a dry climate, that'll do it. I mean, my understanding of the mummification cult in Egypt was that they came upon it by accident. I mean, you just bury people in the desert out there and... They and were still there. They were still there and they were like, huh, years maybe this is significant. And gradually they turned it into part of their culture. But it was originally just like, huh, look at this. The bodies don't decay. Yeah, it doesn't happen here in humid Seattle, for example. All my bodies <laughs> that oh. I have out back <laughs> are in terrible shape. <laughs> you know, this program will be listened to eventually, but I guess maybe many... I, th I feel like the statute of limitations for, my, for being the Green River Killer will have expired. Many thousands of years <laughs> from now, they won't be able to retroactively pin all the, uh, all the crimes on you. But I do suggest that people try to find our mummified corpses. You know, we're probably heroes in this era. Try to find where we're buried. Take a bite, you know? Maybe we do contain I imagine remarkable powers. that we will be buried with these recordings. Oh, that's a great idea. If you found these, you probably see us with our arms crossed against our chest holding old-timey radio mics Yeah, in inst my, instead yeah. of scepters. In my case, a sword cane in one hand and a, and a giant candy cane in the other. The slightly larger, <laughs> foppisher sarcophagus is John's. That's right. I'm in the smaller, more modest Mennonite one. <laughs> Ken's sarcophagus is actually linoleum, uh, whereas mine is bitumen. Uh, so... Yeah, they, but they, I think, it, you know, a whole religion grew up out of this idea that, you know, life in Egypt is pretty terrible. The life expectancy is maybe 40. You know, the real good times are going to come in the afterlife. There's no sandstorms and scorpions there. Hmm, so what, a, what a weird uh, doctrine to have for a religion to have. Yeah, luckily that idea has completely <laughs> died out. Uh, just so, they, so that's why they would make often these elaborate tombs for their kings, make sure their body is still intact. This way they'll be able to enjoy all that the afterlife right. they has put, to offer. They put a bunch of cats and ibexes and boats in their tomb, and you get to sail off into the afterlife with your cats. Some which... were buried with toilets. That's my favorite thing. The pharaohs had toilets mummified with them. Some even had slaves mummified with them. You know, that's the ultimate power move. Right. Like, let's execute these 50 guys, and then they can, they can work this shift forever. Sure. <laughs> Ugh. And yeah, so they, they'd scoop all the organs out of the body and put them in these jars. They left the heart intact because that was important for their afterlife ritual. The jackal god Anubis would weigh the heart uh, against a feather and that would measure the good, the merit of their deeds. And what, which was supposed to be heavier? Ooh, I think the heart maybe? It well, was. The heart is normally heavier than a feather, so that would be not that difficult. Perhaps this is a magic feather. Perhaps it's the magic feather from Dumbo. I don't a even super know. Super heavy feather. Sure, it's a, it's it's Anubis's feather. <laughs> well, what, didn't didn't Robert Oppenheimer and uh, do considerable work on the heavy feather? <laughs> I have become Anubis, <laughs> weigher of hearts. I, I, can, I can only imagine if he was weighing a heart against a feather that the expectation was kind of like if she's not a witch. <laughs> right. It should be the exception, right? She'll drown. Uh, I would think that the heart should be lighter than a feather. If it were... Maybe that's true. Maybe sin is what weighs you down. Yes. And it's the light heart that's full of good light deeds. That's maybe, what that's Maybe what that's need. where lightheartedness comes from. Maybe it dates all the way back to uh, Amhotep III. Uh, they would actually, the, the brain was the one organ they didn't care at all about. The Egyptians had no idea the brain was important. So they would just scrape it out through the, through the corpse's nose with a curved hook. I remember this as a kid. They thought that, wow, you are older than you look. Well... <laughs> 
<laughs> it wasn't a thing that happened. I remember because Tutankhamun yes, went it, on tour around America when I was a kid. Hit. And it was a big, big thing. People lined up around the entire Seattle Center, uh, lined up to see the remains of King Tut. My mom worked at that exhibit just so we could get like early tickets. Really? Yeah. I never went to see it. My sister and my mom waited 14 hours to go in. I never, I wasn't willing to do it. So I never saw King Tut. But I remember them talking about pulling the brains out with a hook through the nose. And boy, that made a real impact on a seven-year-old boy, I'll tell you. The reason they did it is crazy. They assumed the brain did nothing but produce mucus. They were like, you've got this massive thing behind your nose that, that lubricates your nose. Right. And that's what it's for. Let's get this out of the way. How do we know that's not true? <laughs> yeah, we could be speaking to, to people who have rediscovered that that is in fact true. The brain is just a giant mucus farm. Consciousness and... is a side effect of the real evolutionary purpose of the brain, which is to keep the sinuses nice and uh, nice and flowing. Mm -hmm. It is nice to think that, you know, Tutankhamun did have that thing where, like, he suddenly became a hit again thousands of years later, which right. is what any celebrity wants, He was right? born in Arizona and moved to Babylonia. Sure. <laughs> yeah, he was, a, he was a subject for ironic 70s comedy. <laughs> I mean, that's really the dream, to, to be forgotten and then to become an icon thousands of years later. Like, and that's why we're doing these recordings. Well, sure, that will be true of us, right? The future Steve Martin uh, <laughs> of the cockroach people of the year 7,000. Think of the novelty songs that will be written about us the people will applaud for for no reason oh he's putting the fake arrow on his head again because future cocaine will cause them to think that <laughs> things that aren't really that funny are funny it's funny because he said babylonia and arizona for our future listeners and even maybe for listeners who accidentally were contemporaneous with us these are references to steve martin's comedy of the 1970s which most people probably even our age wouldn't I mean maybe maybe people between a very narrow spectrum are gonna remember Steve Martin's stadium show. Be tasteless, rude, and offensive. Live in a swamp and be three-dimensional. Put a live chicken in your underwear. Get all excited and go to a yawning festival. Okay, everybody. I feel like this is the only place I can say this because people in the future won't know what a terrible thing this is to say, but I don't think that stuff ages well at all. No, it's terrible like, comedy. When I listen to Let's Get Small Now or these classic Steve Martin records that 50,000 people lined up to hear him do, yeah. it's, uh, there's no, there's no routine. There's you know? no joke there. The whole thing is just about him uh, sort of making fun of the idea that people might come to see a comedian do jokes. Well, he, so he was the first comedian to ever do a stadium tour. Yes. And, and he did it with this weird anti-comedy, the last thing you would expect to play in a stadium. And it's, I think it's just that everybody was so baked that all you had to do was make like make sounds that sounded like they were the sounds that go along with somebody being funny. And that was enough. People were rolling in the aisles. I guess it's true. The people next to me are laughing, so I'm having a good time. Yeah. <laughs> he was a wild and crazy guy. But getting back to the Crusades, I guess we haven't been to the Crusades. No, no, no. We haven't been there, but let's get back to them. Getting back to the Crusades. So the, it, it, during the time of the Crusades, the West discovered this, uh, this uh, exotic habit of chowing down on mummies because they're black like bitumen. And by the way, you know, the mummies are not black because they have bitumen in. They're all black because they've got waxes and fats and stuff in them that have faded over time. You know, the, the kinds of balm or incense or whatever that they put on these bodies, that's what has turned black over time. 
When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. Do you have a sense or does anyone have a sense how many mummies were consumed by Persians over the millennia? Well, the, it really, the demand curve really starts to climb when Europe gets in the picture, you know, because that's always what happens, you know. Of course. Um, suddenly there's a new audience that really, really wants mummies. <laughs> and for the same reason, they think it's going to cure what ails them. And so people start going to the Middle East just to just check out mummies, you know, and just to rub it, rub them on their wounds, maybe bring home a little uh, a finger or something. Um but no interest really in the archaeological understanding of mummies or that that wasn't yet a thing. Isn't that amazing that they find these tombs in the ground and what they're really thinking is, if I eat this, maybe I'll get these the same powers. Right. Or just like maybe it'll remove these spots from uh, <laughs> under my arms. But, I, guess, I guess if you're dying of spots under your arms, you'll eat anything, you know. But but yeah, that it, it's always been strange to me that the particular curiosity about the past that would extend or that would... Cause, I mean, which is now something so natural to us, the the idea that you would, if you found an arrowhead or a painted rock somewhere, that you would, A, treasure it, and B, be curious about who made it, sure, and get it to the right intellectual to explain it to you. That was just not part of the culture. None of that was part of the culture. I wonder if it, just not having a lot of knowledge about the past just collapses the time frame. So these people don't have the sense that they're looking at something that could be thousands of years old. I, I remember when they found the first dinosaur bones in England, people assumed they were like Hannibal's elephants that the Romans had brought, or, or maybe uh, the bones of giant angels from the book of Genesis. Like people just had no idea what they were looking at. Right. And I wonder if that sort of confuses things. Yeah, must have done, right? But within the context of their culture, which was dictated by their religious origin story, there wasn't room for something to be 5,000 years old from a different culture. And so it just didn't exist or matter didn't occur to them. There were wealthy merchants like Dutch merchants would keep a cabinet of curiosities. Like they would have a part of their parlor where they would keep, you know, exotic things that traders had brought back. I don't know anything about that impulse. Your whole house is a cabinet of curiosities. <laughs> but it started with the Dutch. They'd have a little corner of their study that had like a, a rare shell from the Caribbean. And here's a whale's f flipper bone. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people would have mummy parts there as well. This is from an Egyptian mummy. But it was still thought of as like a exotic health food supplement, you know, uh -huh. like the same reason you would dig up a crystal today and uh, and hope that it cured your arthritis. I would not dig up a crystal and hope it cured my arthritis. But yes, I get what you're saying. There were a lot of mummies in the ground, but not enough to sustain this trade. So people predictably just started tr selling executed criminals and, and murdered slaves 
to Europe as mummy food. Say what now? Yeah, they would just dig like, up any bodies. Like people who had just recently died. Sure. Like the idea that there's antiquity is important here goes out the window. Uh, so there's a mummy gap and the consumers back in Europe are like, get me my mummy juice. And the merchants in the Levant, rather than just put some olive oil on the burner for a while and add some garlic to it and call it mummy juice, actually said, no, we'll dig up real bodies and and process them into pulpy garbage. I mean, this is terrible. They would sell animal flesh too. You know, they they would sell dried out camel flesh or or whatever. But yeah, a really common thing to do is just go dig up a body and, and, (sighs) and tell some idiot Dutch merchant that that was a mummy. Do you think that our future listeners are going to look back at our own practices and find them just as like repulsive and incomprehensible as we're regarding these practices? Medical practices? Well, I, I'm just trying to think of what it, what we're doing now that seems perfectly normal that is equivalent to digging up bodies and selling them to Europeans in the belief that mummified like fingers will cure spots under your arms. I bet there are medical things we do today that will horrify our listeners. Like if we explain teeth whitening to them, for example, hmm. maybe that would be a terrible taboo to them. Really? Kind of horrifies me actually thinking about it. Or LASIK surgery. LASIK surgery, people keep telling me is really great. Well, I've seen videos of it. It doesn't look really great. They like reshape your cornea. They're slicing up eyeballs. Oh, oh, oh. You know, it used to be that you couldn't join the Air Force or become a pilot in the armed forces in the United States if you had bad vision. But now, apparently, I just heard this, the military will allow you to get LASIK surgery and fly fighter jets. You seem a little peeved about this. Like the genetic stock of our fighter pilots has been weakened now. Well, it's not like a Gattaca problem where I I feel like (laughs) our astronauts should all be perfect. But no, I'm a little peeved about it because I have bad vision and and just assumed I would never be able to be a fighter pilot. There are plenty of reasons I didn't become a fighter pilot. Aren't you too tall? Too tall and I'm too handsome. (laughs) Well, surely they do not, you know, allow fighter pilots just cut off their, you know, six inches of their legs and then disfigure their faces. No. So they're not too tall and handsome. Uh, Europe is, so Europe for hundreds of years, you know, as late as the 18th century, Europe is just gripped with this idea that uh, mummies will cure everything. A, a mummy, a witch's mummy is one of the ingredients in that the witches in Macbeth toss into their cauldron. Francois I of France always carried a pouch that had mummy flesh and pulverized rhubarb in it. A delicious That he used as a snuff? (laughs) He said, it said he, it was said he feared no accident if he had but a little of that by him. Yeah. So he would, you know, if he had a headache, he'd just pop some of that. Hmm. They thought it would cure everything. The list includes coagulated blood, coughing, difficult labor, uh, withering contraction of joints, hardness of scars, Qatar, fluxes, diarrhea, uh, particularly epilepsy. Like these guys thought there was nothing you could not cure wow. by eating mummy and its linen or, you know, a counterfeit of same. And, and so this is testament, I guess, to the power of suggestion too, or the, or the power of, um, of like taking a placebo. Sure. It's worth noting that like modern science has never been able to confirm that bitumen has any medical properties at all. Apparently in Iran, it's still used as, as a face cream of some kind. It's like a beauty aid, but they've had to dilute it because apparently it's toxic in its usual mineral form when you pull it out of the earth. Well, it's sure, got, it's a petroleum. Sure, it's got trace elements of whatever. It's got, it's got heavy metals or something. So science has never determined that, that uh, bitumen 
is good for you at all. Is good for you at all. And we're talking about mummies, which are imitation bitumen. Yes. Although I feel like the link to bitumen was lost pretty quick and people just started to have the idea that, you know, something about the antiquity of the mummy itself, the life force within it. I see. Paracelsus even believed that newer corpses might be better, you know, that maybe you're not getting ripped off if you're eating some just murdered Berber slave. You know, maybe that's, it's got fresher, more recent life energy. So we're getting kind of close to soil and green here. It's turning into ritual cannibalism in Christian medieval Europe, which is a little bit weird, right? I would say. So uh, everyone wanted a mummy. As European governments moved into North Africa, you know, Napoleon, we've already mentioned, the British came in as well. It became a tourist destination. Um, And a French monk said in the 1830s, it would be hardly respectable on one's return from Egypt to present oneself without a mummy in one hand and a crocodile in the other. So people would come wandering back from the desert with, you know, these equivalents of T-shirts and snow globes. And there were a lot of mummies there. When the the temple of the cat goddess Bubastis was excavated by the British, 300,000 mummified cats were found. Whoa. 300,000. These were not eaten, but nobody knew what to do with them. They were actually sent back to England and used as fertilizer. Whoa. People were using antique mummified cats to grow their courgettes and whatever other marrows and whatever other weird British vegetables they have. Well, let me put this to you, I guess, which is to say if you found how many mummified cats? 300,000. If you found 300,000 mummified cats now, what use would you put them to? Would you, I mean, because you could, I guess, give a mummified cat to every museum in the world. You could give mummified cats to dignitaries when they came through Egypt, like, thank you for visiting, shake hands, photo opportunity, hand over a mummified cat. That's a lot of mummified cats. I do feel at a certain point that... It's not a relic anymore if there's 300,000 of them. If there's 300,000 of them, I just wonder what... Just preserving 300,000 mummified cats... It's a fair point. I feel like you would just maybe just seal that door again and say like, okay... We know what's behind there. <laughs> but what's interesting to me is they went to all the trouble to ship them to England. And then they were like, yeah, I don't know what we're going to do to this. Just just pour it into this uh, garden in Nottinghamshire or where, wherever <laughs> they ended up. It got worse than that. There were reports of in British Egypt, um, mummy corpses and linens being tossed into the trains of the new steam locomotives of the new railroads that were being built just to be used as fuel instead of Whoa. tinder or uh, coal. No, really? Like a cheap source of just something to burn. It's just like like turf, except we imported mummified cats to do this. Yeah, and I guess there's just so much of it that that's you start to just see it as part of the ground, like uh, something that can be dug up like coal or peat or something. I'm trying to imagine, I mean, think about how you would feel like on a grand tour. Because the railroads were new too. Yeah. And you're, you've got your like top hat on and you're getting on board the train and then you learn that you're being propelled across the landscape in a ghost train powered by burning cats, burning ancient cats. I feel like I would pay extra for that now. Well, all of our hydrocarbons are dead something, right? Like algae, probably. Right. Um, this not is just dinosaurs. Little, not dinosaurs. That's a misconception. It's probably predates them. But, you know, this is just a, a little further up the food chain. And yeah, how many would you have to dig up before you stop seeing these as corpses and just start seeing them as commodity? And uh, during the Civil War, there was a paper mill in Maine that had a linen shortage. You know, you need linen to make paper. And it was, uh, I guess, maybe because it was going to bandages, it was hard to get Mm. during wartime. Sure. So they imported a ton of just mummy wrappings from the Middle East and thought they could use that to make paper. 
And it didn't work? It did not go well. They ended up selling it as gift wrapping. So, no. so children in Maine in Christmas 1863 were opening terrible whittled toys wrapped in mummy linens. <laughs> True story. Oh, the past is so wonderful. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start that's unlimited access to thousands of lessons exercises and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks just go to musician.com slash start that's y-o-u-s-i-c-i-a-n.com slash start my favorite thing is that they would have parties so this shows that there was some scientific or at least scientific slash mystical influence here they would actually have unwrapping parties where you'd go to some victorian parlor and somebody would bring in a mummy and they would unwrap it and you would watch as trinkets and scarabs fell out of it or the, you know, the desiccated flesh started to appear. So at what point did mummies become scary or the idea that a mummy could be reanimated and sort of rigor mortis, march around in rigor, uh, slowly kind of scaring you, terrorizing you like Frankenstein? Yeah, mummies and... Their slow-moving cousins, zombies, are mostly a 20th century invention. Like, of, when you think of those early universal monsters, you know, you think of the big ones like Frankenstein and Dracula. Those are both gothic 19th century novels. You know, those are the, the romantics at work. But that's not true of the mummy. I think the mummy was created out of the whole cloth in the 20th century. Um, if I remember the story right, it's a woman whose other main claim to fame was creating the IRS's 1040 form hmm. that we still use today. She designed the form and she wrote a short story about a, mum, a reanimated mummy. And that's when it became kind of a Halloween staple. Before uh-huh. that, it wasn't that at all. But there was kind of a spooky vibe. Like in a description of a, of a mummy unwrapping party, they, they did not just tug on the one end of the linen and watch it spin real fast like a Scooby-Doo <laughs> like character. Scooby-Doo. <laughs> they would, it would be a very slow, I guess the equivalent of a striptease, except with death replacing the erotic charge. Uh-huh. And, uh, well, I, yeah, I think there would be a ton of eroticism to it. I mean, this whole thing is Orientalism, right? What we would call Orientalism. Yes. This, this fetishization of the, of the East. All things strange and Eastern. Yeah. The, uh, the French novelist Théophile Gautier described being at a mummy unwrapping. And he said, the work of unrolling the bandages began. The outer envelope of stout linen was ripped open with scissors. A faint, delicate odor of balsam incense and other aromatic drugs spread through the room like the odor of an apothecary's shop. The end of the bandage was then sought for, and when found, the mummy was placed upright to allow the operator to move freely around her, ah, her, and to roll up the endless band, turned to the yellow color of ecru linen by the palm wine and other preserving liquids. A vast quantity of linen filled the room, and we could not help wondering how a box which was scarcely larger than an ordinary coffin had managed to hold it all. And he goes on, you know, uh, the big reveal, two white eyes with great black pupils shone with fictitious life between brown eyelids. 
Uh, little by little, the body began to show in its sad nudity. Is it not a surprising thing, one that seems to belong to the realm of dreams, to see on a table in still appreciable shape a being which walked in the sunshine, which lived and loved 500 years before Moses, 2,000 years before Jesus Christ? So, you know, at least this guy is aware of some of the historical charge right. of seeing— And this was written at, uh, when? That's the mid-19th uh, mid century. So at this point, sure, the, this is the age of science. People are starting to— to come around at least to the early days of archaeology. But when did mummy, when did Egyptology, uh, when was it invented? When did people start studying this stuff and stop consuming it? I think that goes to Napoleon as well. I mean, N Napoleon's invasion of Egypt included his own archaeological interest. You know, he, like that was when they found the Rosetta Stone, for example. So before then, Egyptian text could not be deciphered. And I guess attaching like a detective story to it, like it's a code that you could crack, um, is what caught the public interest. And I, maybe it was not even, people were not even widely aware of the depth and complexity of what was left of Egyptian civilization before then. I mean, he took an obelisk back to Paris, right? Sure. Uh, Cleopatra's needle is still in, well, there's one in what, Paris and London, maybe? Yeah. Both. Um, not Cleopatra's, actually. That's That's another misnomer, but... Sure, an ancient obelisk. And uh, that became a popular thing. And if you go to Victorian uh, cemeteries or any European cemetery from that era, you'll see a lot of European-looking obelisks. That became the common grave marker even in the West. People even here in, in, in America, I, I was just in some graveyards in Alabama last week, and there were some Egyptian-style obelisks. Egyptian-looking It explains the Washington Monument. That was, that was also built in the mid-19th century. It does seem a little weird that we have this giant occult Egyptian item towering above our capital in our time. That's that's the thing the future will be surprised about. Well, when you think about the iconography of the Masons, yes. it involves a lot of sort of sphinxes and other Egyptian, like stylized Egyptian-ish statuary and and paintings. And I mean, it's... Um, and I assume that's also just all 18th and 19th century kind of rediscovery of sort of faux antiquity and... Uh, well, when you think about the style of our capital, it's all derived from the 18th century fascination with Greece, Greece and Rome. I mean, all of our all of our municipal buildings, the Capitol building and the White House and so forth, they're all just imitations of Greek architecture as co-opted by the Romans. This is what I'm talking about when history collapses when you don't have a good picture of it. I mean, our, to our listeners in the distant future, there's probably not much of a difference between the Parthenon and Athens and our Supreme Court building, yeah, right. they look about the same. Were, uh, were those like 10 years apart or? Well, and this is the funny thing, right? Because the, because how long did the civilization of Egypt last? I mean, more than 2,000 years. Yeah, thousands and thousands of years. And like, those, that's 2,000 years that separate us from Rome. So sure, it is, it, it will be thought of as contiguous. Sure, the, the historical gap between the old kingdom of Egypt and Cleopatra is probably greater than between Cleopatra and now. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, when uh, they talk about the oldest mummies in the world actually being from the Americas. Um, they, oh, is that right? The, Are they... The oldest mummies, the oldest extant mummies are from, or, or, or intentional mummies were made in 5000 BC, a long time before the Egyptian mummies. And uh, they were made in, I think, Chile. And that civilization lasted for 2000 years a civilization that none of us could name, myself included. Maybe they didn't have a name, even at the time. Uh, but they were like fishermen who lived off of the ocean there in, in Chile, and they mummified their dead. 
and not just the elite dead, but like they mummified their kids and grandma and grandpa. I they, guess I guess Chile's a desert, like that part of Chile. Northern Chile is a desert, same as Egypt. You, yeah. You discover mummification accidentally, and that just becomes what you do with everybody. But you're right. The way that history collapses, it seems crazy to us to think of a civilization lasting 2,000 years. And maybe we are just an extension of the Romans or the Greeks. We wouldn't think that, but maybe that's... Or the Etruscans. That's what our our futureling listeners think of us as just... uh, Humanoids. The end of the Roman Empire. That brings us to Mummy Brown, finally. Uh, You know, with all the things that people had been doing with mummies, you know, burning them in trains, um, getting a sexual kick out of unwrapping them at parties. (laughs) Um, Gnawing on their fingers or their... It shouldn't come as a surprise that they artists started to use them in paintings. You know, a big part of art at the time was discovering and mixing the hot new pigment because that was actually a pretty hard part of art over the ages. You know, today we're used to a more digital era where, you know, any color can be produced with just six hexadecimal digits. You know, any any Pantone color you want can just be produced. And that was never true in history, you know. Wars have been fought over trying to find a slightly better blue or a better red to dye cloth. That's big money. Uh, And so a big part of being an artist was having a good color man who could grind the right pigments for you. So when you say artists started to use mummies in paintings, you don't mean that they started to paint mummies. No. Use them as subjects in their art. No. They ground them up? They started to paint other things with ground up mummy. You wanted to have some bone in it that would give it the right texture, the right crumbly texture. Um, But artists really liked it as a medium. It would... uh, it would dilute well, so it would spread easily onto the canvas. Um, it was really good as a watercolor. If you watered it down enough, you would get nice, you know, uh, kind of glazing effects. It was good for shadows, um, especially flesh tones, as you might imagine, since you're painting with hmm. actual flesh. Uh, and so mummy brown was a popular pigment from the 18th century for hundreds of years. Wow. And that wasn't the only weird pigment, by the way. You know, there were, the search for exotic pigments went all over the world. You know, there was a, for a while, there was a fad for Indian yellow, which was, I think the story was it was elephants that were fed nothing but mango. And then their unusually yellow urine was collected and dried into a a new, unusually vivid yellow pigment. This sounds crazy, but not very long ago in Brooklyn, New York, I had a cup of coffee that was made from coffee beans that were consumed by the civet cat and then pooped out of it. They chew it up and I've read about this. And then collected out of the cat poop, ground. And how is civet poop coffee? It made me high as can be. Oh, really? It was phenomenal. I mean, the cup of coffee cost $15. I didn't buy it. It was purchased for me as a as a, as a hipster gag. As a hipster gag, yeah. But it was, I mean, I was flying. I really enjoyed it. I would drink it every day uh, if I didn't have any other work to do because I was seeing like snowflakes everywhere. Do you think some of that is like mummy placebo? Like you knew that your coffee had been in the intestine of a civet, so you were ready to have an experience? No, I don't think so. I'm pretty inured to the effects of coffee. And this came upon me like a well, like a jungle cat. <laughs> like a civet jumping from a branch. It did. I was like... Into your brain. I could see colors. I could I could feel around corners. Uh, Delacroix used mummy brown. Uh, the biggest fans of it were the pre-Raphaelites in right. Britain who loved that sort of delicate, beigey thing that was going on. Um, apparently, it didn't age well. Like, it cracked when on the canvas. And so many people were not crazy about it. 
Um, the most famous story about Mummy Brown is the pre-Raphaelite artist Edward Byrne Jones um, having another artist over for lunch on a Sunday, and uh, they were talking about different pigments they enjoyed. Oh, if I could be a fly on the wall for that conversation. Well, one of them mentioned that he had uh, he had gone to see a mummy that had just been imported into his colorman's workshop before being it was going to be ground down into pigment because it would last a long time. You know, uh, if a colorman got a mummy in, that could give him mummy brown for a decade. Sure, that's uh, the gift that keeps on giving. And Edward Byrne Jones was not aware that mummy brown was from mummies. He was like, no, it's called that because it's the color of a mummy. And he was told, no, no, it's actually from real mummies. And when he was assured that this was actually compounded of real mummy, said his widow, he left us at once, hastened to his studio, and returned with the only tube he had. He insisted on our giving it a decent burial then and there. <laughs> so a hole was bored in the green grass at our feet, and we all watched it put safely in. One of the, uh, one of the guests there was uh, his wife's nephew, uh, who grew up to be Rudyard Kipling. And this was a very important memory to young Whoa. Rudyard, who, who remembered later in life how he, he saw Edward Byrne Jones descend in broad daylight with a tube of mummy brown in his hand, saying that he had discovered it was made of dead pharaohs and we must bury it accordingly. So we all went out and helped according to the rites of Mizraim in Memphis, I hope. And to this day, I could drive a spade within a foot of where that tube lies. So very influential for young Kipling to see mummy brown returned to the earth from interesting although i don't i don't see in kipling's work as much respect for the the traditions of the people of the east maybe he should have maybe he should have watched a little more carefully as they were praying over the tube of paint so is there a record of famous paintings that we might know that have mummy brown as a component i think it might be difficult to know for sure um the paintings that are often mentioned as, you know, reputedly using Mummy Brown are not household names. Right. There's a famous uh, Martin drooling interior that seems to have the shades of mummy in it. But uh, there's really no way to know. And maybe it was not a widespread thing. You know, maybe it was more of a, a gimmicky item. Right. Um, there were plenty of worse things you could paint with. Uh, th there was a fad for a, a, a color called Shields Green, a very pale yellowish green that everyone loved. Um, Napoleon had it on the walls of his uh, parlor in St. Helena in exile, but unfortunately it was made of cupric hydrogen arsenate. It was full of arsenic. And, oh, sure. And when Napoleon died, his body was full of arsenic. So having vivid green <sighs> walls in his house may have killed him. Well, futurelings are laughing hysterically because of course we've all been suffering from lead poisoning for the last hundred years because it, that was how you got white paint. It's worse than that. If, if they're an advanced civilization at all, they know all kinds of carcinogenic things that we just ingest without even thinking twice. Sure, Kraft macaroni and cheese is probably, I mean, how do you get that yellow? Oh, way to lose, way to lose that sponsorship, John. <laughs> it's ground up bumblebees or ground up children's dreams or something. You feed, you feed macaroni mango and let it pee and it comes out that color. The story of Mummy Brown actually goes into the 20th century uh, because... They had supplies that would last so long, even well into an age when you would expect to see mummies treated respectfully in a museum. You could still go in these old-timey pigment stores and they would have a, a mummy in the back. A 1964 Time Magazine article interviews the managing director of Roberson's, a pigment manufacturer in London, who says that uh, they are no longer selling the way it used to. We may have a few odd limbs lying around somewhere, he apologized, but not enough to make any more paint. We sold our last complete mummy some years ago for, I think, three pound. Perhaps we shouldn't have. 
we certainly can't get any more. And that concludes Mummy Brown. Entry 817.PR0716. Certificate number 37891. Listeners, in the unlikely event social media continues to persist in your distant future, our tweets are archived at at Omnibus Project, and our individual Twitter handles were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. I also have a fascinating Instagram account under my same name. Uh, you may send email to us if you are a time traveler. If you have some kind of Rosetta Stone that will let you translate into the language of our modern email. As we know, time is shaped like a donut, and so all you have to do is make your email into a sprinkle. A higher four-dimensional email. A higher, that's right, a tesseract. Turn your email into a tesseract and send it to us at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. Uh, listeners, we speak to you as if mummies from the distant past. Our voices are muffled by the linen over our mouth. And uh, as such, we would be the last to know how long our civilization survived. Maybe it'll come so abruptly that we will never know what eventually happened to us. You do. Um, certainly we hope that a catastrophe may never befall us, but we fear that the worst will come soon. This recording could conceivably be our final word. We don't know. But we certainly hope that Providence allows with us to be back with you again soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>